Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Jadam Sulongkumar, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Dr. Daimu Daira to talk about his book, Taking Religion Seriously, Essays on Discursive Study of Religion. Now, people who have been listening to this podcast and to me having conversation with authors will be aware that I'm very much interested in theories, specifically the theories of religion. And I'm very interested in having conversation about that, but also at the same time, I'm, I am very invested in thinking about theories in religion. So today I'm so pleased to be here with Dr. Daimu Daira to talk about his book where he talks about the discursive uh, way of trying to understand and study religion. So. Uh, without much uh, giving much background on the book itself, let me just straight away go do the author himself because there is so much to cover in this book uh, in this very short time. So let me straight away go to the author himself and ask him. So Dr. Daimu Daira, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Yes. Um, <clears throat> if I briefly iterate my my years in the study of religion, I, I started my studies at the University of Turku in Finland, and I actually did my PhD there as well. And then um, I moved to Leeds, first as a visiting fellow and later on uh, as, a, as a postdoc researcher in a project with Kim Not and Liz Poole, in which we studied uh, media portrayals of religion in the British context. And then after the project came to an end, I moved back to Turku, and, and worked there as a, as a university researcher until I was offered a permanent position from the University of Helsinki in 2015. And I've been at the University of Helsinki ever since. So um, I've, I've been in different places, but I've always been in the, in the study of religion departments. So, and, and that's the sort of short iteration of, of, of my years in, in the study of religion and, and my special areas have been threefolded. I would say that first I've, I've, I've been very interested in theories and methods and especially discursive approaches in recent years. And then I've, I've written quite a lot about atheism, secularism and non-religion. And, and, and the third area is religion and media. So I think that in this book we are going to talk about I'm mostly uh, focusing on the first area, theories and methods, but also a little bit to the to the other ones. Yeah, that's quite a um, short and precise um, overview of what uh, you you have done and your background. That's quite really good. So this book, um, as um, it is uh, said in the title also, it's more uh, of an overview of the different uh, methods and theories of uh, trying to understand religion, but also specifically looking at the discursive study. So how did this uh, work and this book as a whole came about? Yeah. <sighs> Where to start? I think it would be appropriate to start from the late 1990s and early 2000 when I 
when I started reading books by, by Russell McCutcheon and Timothy Fitzgerald, uh, recommended to me by, by Veikko Antonen, who, who was a professor, my professor and supervisor at that time. So I started reading those books, and, and at that time I considered moving to cultural history department to do my PhD. But but when I when I started reading more, let's say, critical approaches to the study of religion, I decided that okay, I, I can I can live with the field of study of religion. I, this this now looks more exciting than than I thought. So I stayed in the in in the field, and and. S- Soon I started to, to be interested in, in problematizing religion, see it uh, as a sort of historical category uh, that emerged in certain point of time and ha- it has changed ever since. And, and um, at that time my research wasn't focused on that at all, but I, I read that kind of stuff at the same time. And then I, I thought that, okay, many of these uh, studies that exist focus on uh, 19th century or, or, or even earlier times. And um, I was more, always more interested in, in contemporary present times. And uh, many of these early studies were, were large-scale studies, like how the category of religion emerged as, as part of modernity or something like that in relation to nation states, in relation to colonial contexts, um, and, and how it was, how the category of religion was sp- spread from, from the Western world to, to other areas, India, Japan, elsewhere. And I thought that, well, I'm not necessarily going to focus on that at any point of time, but then I thought, okay, but, but the, the negotiation and, and the debates related to the category of religion are going on all the time in our, in our contemporary society. And, and I thought, okay, especially these cases uh, in, in court, court cases and, and legal contexts in which courts and judges and, and, and laws are nego- defining religion and negotiating what counts as religion, um, are quite interesting cases to study. And, and then I started focusing on those cases. Um, I, I mean, interesting cases don't come up every year necessarily, but, but whenever they, they come up and, and um, um, are sort of available for, for, for me as a researcher so that I can get the material um, not just to rely on, on second-hand information about those cases, then then I think think that okay, or I thought that okay, I'm just doing one case study, then another, and then they start piling up, and and I, then I started writing more um, theoretical reflections on on what what can we learn and how can we um, conceptualize the field of study of religion more generally. From this point of view, um, then then I I just uh, published some some articles and some of them are rewritten and updated for this book, and I think in practice it was pretty much Russell McCutcheon who who um, told me many many times that you should uh, put these articles together and publish them as a book in this series and 
I waited some years and then finally I had time to do that and now it's out. Yeah, I mean, the journey that you have taken in terms of thinking about all, all of these uh, ideas and, you know, that's that that's far you have come and uh, putting these essays in a book, I think it really speaks about the very um, ingenuity of uh, the book itself and also uh, the work that you are doing. So I think the effort that you're also putting, so I think uh, that's uh, quite really interesting. So let, let's just go into the discursive study and what really it is. Now, religion, as uh, we know, uh, can be studied through the phenomenological aspect, the, you know, uh, the functional aspect. And also nowadays people talk so much about leaf religion and how we can study from those perspectives and all. So again, coming to the discursive study of religion now, I think one of the questions that people might also ra- raise in the sense people who are beginning to try to understand religion might raise is uh, how can we study something which doesn't cannot even be defined or which doesn't even have a definition? So how do we really going to study uh, these things? So the question, I think in, in your book, you also deal on how to do a discursive study of religion. But I think uh, the question that I want to ask now is, what is the discursive study of religion? Yeah. In the book, I don't, I don't give a straightforward answer to that question, what is discursive study of religion? But I characterize quite broadly different versions of di- discursive approaches. I mean, there are some of the things that needs to be emphasized here. For instance, discourse analysis is is quite common method in in arts and humanities and social sciences. And and when I was studying in in Finland, it was very, very popular. So I I read a lot about those uh, introductory textbooks um, delineating discourse analysis. In most cases, uh, the the field was not about religion, but something like in in social psychology or or social sciences more generally. And when I'm talking about discursive study of religion, I'm sort of referring not only those approaches that utilize discourse analysis. They can be labeled as as part of discursive study of religion, okay? Um, And and different types of um, approaches have have some common elements, obviously. In in a very general sense, uh, we can probably say that discursive study of religion uh, is is, uh, the way of studying in which um, we study the construction of social reality through discourses or various meaning-making systems. We study language in use. That's a very brief way of putting it. But I also say that that I would include the discursive study of religion almost any kind of approach that utilizes the concept of discourse, um, even when it is not discourse analysis. In, in any specific manner. So, for example, many scholars in the study of religion um, don't necessarily do discourse analysis as such, but they uh, utilize the concept of discourse in, in studying the category of religion. And I, I include all those together, but I make distinctions between them and I have my own way of doing discursive study in this book. And my own way of doing 
is such that doesn't define religion. Now, there are discursive approaches that begin by defining religion and then study whatever is defined as religious, how discourses are operating in those contexts. I use, I use Bruce Lincoln's uh, great studies as an example of that approach. I call that um, approach religious discourse, but I differentiate mine uh, from that by, by calling it discourse on religion or discourses on religion. And by that I mean that my approach is not giving a definition of religion, but in this book I'm focusing only on those cases in which I study others who are negotiating, negotiating about what counts as religion, how, how religion is defined by, by law, by different uh, speakers in different contexts, um, how different institutions are defining it and negotiating uh, what counts as religion. So I don't give a definition of religion at any point. And therefore, my, my general message in this book is that we can do interesting studies in our field without defining our uh, key concept, religion. So that is an object of study for me. And I try to be consistent in this book about that. Yes, and I think one of the immediate questions that comes while you speak about that discursive study of religion and the way you portrayed it, one of the straightaway questions can be, then how do we do this discursive study? Because I think in the study of religion today, the idea of tradition and also is so much dominated by the world religion paradigm and all of this uh, perspective. And when we look at the, I mean, we talk about historical uh, perspective and all of those aspects are there. So you in your book, you deal a lot on how to do discursive study of religion. But here, I think, give us a short glimpse of, you know, how to really go about doing this discursive study of religion then. Yeah. Well, in the, in the, in the second chapter, I, I provide a sort of outline of, of how discursive study can be done generally. It relates heavily or refers heavily to quite standard ideas on how discourse analysis more generally is done, how, what kind of material is typical for, for such studies, um, and, and what, how, how can we identify discourses or identify some key distinctions we can focus on in the studies, and so on and so forth. But then I moved, moved more strongly to, to my own preferences and uh, I'm, I'm not putting it in this book straight away, this kind of step-by-step -step, uh, manner in how to do it, because I actually, actually um, agree with those scholars who say that these discuss, discussive frameworks, how, how to put them into practice, um, should not be done step-by-step -step manner, but we need to be sensitive to the context we are working on, what kind of levels we want to focus on, um, what is our material and what are our questions. But uh, I, elsewhere, I've, I've, I've tried to sort of give some uh, 
um, how to say, guidelines on how to do discursive study of religion. And, and I think in this book, it is more, most obvious when we go to case studies. Uh, those case studies are providing a model um, one can easily follow and apply. At least that's how I've thought about it. Of course, it, it, it remains to others to see how they can apply it. But, but um, I think that it is interesting uh, to start with identifying a case in, in which religion is negotiated, whether it's a, it's a law case or something else. I, I study quite a lot about those registration processes, and we can talk about those later. But, but then I identify key actors and, 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 and key documents. And I, I, don't, I don't really do interviews. I don't, I don't use interviews or questionnaires as a, as a main data, but, but the kind of data that I call naturally occurring data that exists without the researcher's input. So it, it is already there, the data, in public, public sphere. So, so, and it is, they are mostly public documents um, provided by institutions or, or, or media materials or something like that. And I see how different actors are involved, like media, um, officials, um, Groups in question, um, scholars are quite often involved in those cases, and and then I try to try to see how how society is organized by referring to religion. So in that sense, I I could say that I'm not studying at any point religion as a phenomenon in this book. Or tradition, but but simply how how societies operate by referring to religion, and what different actors um, are trying to achieve by doing that work, by by claiming um, that something is religion or denying religiosity of a particular group, practice, or, or a symbol. So, so that's that's the type of model I'm, I'm proposing in this book. But but in the in the chapter two, which is more about about uh, method, I I lay out the standard ideas of of how how discourse analysis is done in a in a typical sense. Yeah, and to kind of put um, this theoretical framework into better perspective, I think we should, we'll have to go into the case studies here. And uh, this is where, at first you talk about this, one of the, one of the so-called the new religion movement, which is the Wicca. And I think uh, you talk about here, I think uh, in, in, in this chapter, you talk about the overlapping of the judicial process and the cultural discourses that goes about and how this Wiccan community they can add attention to this one. So what can we, through, through this uh, Wicca movement, this new religion movement, what can we learn about uh, the, uh, the discursive study of religion? Yeah. Of all case studies in this book, this is the earliest one I, I did. And, and uh, also, also it is the oldest one in, in terms of what was going on in, in, in society. So this, this case study is about Finnish 
context when a, a group of Wiccans, Finnish Free Wicca Society or Association, uh, tried to get registered, uh, registered as a religious community. That was in, in early 2000s. And, uh, and I, I mean, in the end, they didn't get it through, but it, it went to a, a Supreme Court when it was voted uh, four votes against registration and three votes for registration. So it was very tight um, decision. And, and this is an, an example through which I'm trying to see how, how uh, religion is, is used or how it operates as a discursive technique in society. And, and I, I focus on those Wiccans, what they tried to achieve, why were they interested in getting uh, registered as a religious community in the first place? What would have they gained from, from, from that process um, if it had succeed, succeeded? So that's one layer in that. But then another layer is the, is the legal aspect, how law defines what counts as religion. And, and because it was, it was such a tight uh, decision in the end, um, I think it provides good material in, in highlighting what officials think religion is in the Finnish context. Of course, there is law that provides some framework but it doesn't provide strict definition of religion. Um, it provides some um, kind of some kind of framework of what religion is about, but it's not strict definition in the end. And and uh, I mean, one way would be to study this type of case uh, by focusing simply whether the law was applied correctly or not. But I also argue that, that in this particular context, when, when law doesn't provide strict and exact definition, people who are dealing with the law are referring to cultural, their own cultural understanding what, what is typically religious. And, and I argue that that type of conceptualization comes from the Christian Protestant prototype of what religion is, and and groups that doesn't um, fit with that prototype or go further away from that prototype force officials to to uh, spell out what they think religion is, and and then we can we can get to the understanding of what what uh, people people conceive um, what religion is and how it how it uh, is demarcated from from what is not religious and in this sense i i um, talk about boundary cases where there is no clear understanding or agreement what whether this particular group counts as religious or not. <clears throat> and in this particular case, 
it was interesting that that scholars also were more or less involved in in this negotiation. And my point of view is in this case and and also in other cases that that I don't define religion and I recommend the approach in which scholars don't uh, go out in public or or work as experts or in court cases in a manner that would would give a proper definition of religion. Um, Of course, some scholars study Wiccans, for example, as religious, traditional religious group. But but I think that it is probably the best way to participate in public debates by not suggesting that this is a religion or this is not a religion, but rather um, by trying to reveal what those people are doing when they when or what they are trying to achieve when they they claim to be a religious community or how the society operates when when it has such laws for example that that um, allow some groups to get privileges when when they are uh, register, re- registering as as religious communities Yes, and coming to the role of the scholar, I think in the second example, that is uh, when you talk about the Garhun Kansa, uh, one of the, uh, you know, as they were applying for a process of being a religious community, uh, you talk about your personal involvement there. And I think, uh, I mean, if anyone as, um, you know, scholar of religion or if anyone talking about mm, religion in that sense would like to be on the forefront of uh, you know defining what is religion and what is not religion but i think you talk about a different case here in terms of the garhun kansa uh, where you talk about their movement and how your involvement has been so uh, can you please elaborate on that one yeah yes um i mean as i said before some of the material in this book has been previously published and and then updated and rewritten but this chapter is completely new one, uh, and it is it is about a case of Karhun Kansa people of the Bear, quite a small group in Finland, uh, and at that time when they were um, registering successfully as a religious community uh, in in two thousand and thirteen, um, they they were representing what is called Finnish faith. Uh, sort of rehabilitation of pre-Christian uh, Finno-Ugric, Balto-Finnic traditions um, through sc- mostly scholarly uh, sources. What is what is known about pre-Christian times, and and then um, some of those aspects are um, rehabilitated, rehabilitated in 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 according to their own interpretation of uh, what what life used to be and what was considered sacred at that time and so on and so forth. So this particular group, Karhun Kansa, um, applied for a, re- a registered religious community. And and first of all, they, they got the rejection letter. The expert committee thought that, that there are some... Um, 
problems with the with the way um, rituals are described and so on and so forth. Um, those are those are required by 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 law. But the expert committee didn't think that Karhun Kansa is is really a religious group. And then when I when I saw the saw the expert committee statement, I wrote a short blog post um, where in which I didn't defend Karhun Kansa. Um, I didn't say that of course they are a religious community and I didn't say the opposite either. But I tried to show how the expert committee statement relies heavily on on a Protestant Christian prototype of what what religion is, what counts as religion, and how it uses that as a yardstick in in uh, uh, in their evaluation of whether Karhun Kansa would would count as a religious group or community, and and I also highlighted the the composition of the expert committee. How, how all those experts were actually clo- working very closely with the Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church is the, the main dominant church in Finland. So it appears it appears that some figures, some persons in, in within the Lutheran Church or people close with the Lutheran Church are actually deciding what what counts as religion in Finnish context. This was a question of image. Um, and, and, and many people saw it that way, so I wasn't the only one. And, and soon after the blog post, um, news media started to uh, pick up the issue and, and um, on the base of my blog post. And, and soon uh, the, the Minister of the Interior, who, who was responsible for naming that expert committee, and who is also who was also known as conservative Christian, um, not very much liked by the, the relatively liberal media. Um, so she responded to my my criticism uh, that was published in in, in uh, more mainstream media. Um, not only once but twice. It also happened a couple of months later. And it was it was in almost all important newspapers. So so I, I calculated that the the potential coverage of of that story was was within a couple of million in a in a country with five point five million inhabitants. So so potentially it was it was really a, a mainstream media media case. I don't know how many people read it really, but I got a lot of feedback of that. So, so I was very much involved in that case. In at the moment when uh, the group itself, Karhun Kansa, handed in their improved application in Finland, that is possible that if you if you fail to register, you get a, a letter, and and then you can improve your application. And respond to that, and and but but interesting thing here is that I was very much involved in that public debate when the process was open. 
So, so I cannot claim or I cannot prove that my involvement uh, really um, had had direct influence to that case, because the second letter, second uh, decision, and, and letter by the expert committee was was positive and and recommended um, clearly that that Karhunkansa should be allowed to register as a religious community. But the interesting thing is that suddenly the same group of experts that first thought that Karhunkansa definitely doesn't count as a religious group had changed its mind after a couple of months and, and, and claimed that, of course, this is a religious community. Um, and, and one interesting thing is, well, of course, this my involvement is interesting thing, but I cannot I cannot prove that it had effect. But I speculate in that chapter that perhaps it was um, the media who wanted to pick up the case because the media is happy if they can they can criticize. Päivi uh, Rasanen, who was uh, the Minister of the Interior at that time and, and known as Conservative Christian. And I think that, that the positive decision was partly related to the, to the attempt to silence the criticism concerning the expert committee. That, um, because the expert committee definitely knew that, that if the second decision is negative as well, people will read it, people will discuss it. But um, it was positive. And an interesting thing is that, that now the group was labeled by the expert committee as a, as a neo-pagan community. That was how the expert committee was able to, to figure out that, okay, if we classify groups in these ways, then we can say that Karhunkansa uh, counts as, as, near, as a neo-pagan community. But the group itself doesn't use the term pagan or neo-pagan in its application at all. But, but that, that was the way the expert committee was able to, to label it religious. So, so overall, that registration process is, is very interesting in itself because there are, there are lots of interesting reasons why the, the group itself wanted to become registered as a religious community. Um, we can talk about that later if you want, or, or people can read it from the book. But, but the way how I wrote this particular chapter highlights more my personal involvement in that that uh, case, and and therefore it also highlights how scholars, uh, even when they are not uh, <laughs> introducing themselves to the media, that hey, I'm an expert, you should listen to me. People may get involved in such such debates, and uh, one can easily be a participant in such a debate without uh, saying without defining religion at all. I emphasized all the time that I'm not speaking for the community. I'm not speaking against them. I'm not saying saying what should uh, count as, as religious and what shouldn't. But we can talk about more interesting things. 
such as why um, there is such a, a law in the first place that you have to have to uh, negotiate whether this group can be resisted as a religious community or not, and how power operates in society. For example, through uh, the expert committee, um, and 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 I think those are interesting aspects and and the type type of things that other scholars can hopefully um, understand that we can be um, also participants in public discourses without providing a definition of religion. This is. Um, the reason why I emphasize this is that so many scholars have suggested that, that of course, the public role of, of scholar is to say what really is a religion and what is not. And I oppose that approach. And I even argue that that kind of approach in this particular case wouldn't have worked at all in favor of the, the community, in favor of Karakunkansa. But precisely the fact that I didn't define religion or didn't speak for the community was helpful for the community itself. Uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean very good example and also the approach that you are proposing is also something something which is very interesting. I mean, I. I I might not say that, uh, I mean, all scholars might agree to that one, or I, I might also say that it depends upon the context. But still, I think that approach is something which I would also personally like to emulate in certain sense. So I think that's a very interesting approach that you have given there in that sense. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for that. Now, coming to the next one, that is, you talk about the Truth Network, and this is a chapter or a paper that you have co-written with Susan on. And... Uh, so and this is where you talk about uh, the, the the power relation, JRD and media of how all of those perspectives uh, intersect with each other. So how this Truit network try to gain recognition through this JRD re- registration? So I think uh, can you elaborate more on how this gives out the perspective of discursive study of religion? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As you said, this this uh, chapter is a collaboration with with Dr. Susan Owen, who who works at uh, Leeds Trinity University, and um, I met uh, Susan originally, I think, in two thousand and seven, in in England, and uh, we we were not working at the same same uh, institution, uh, but but we were we were working in the same city, city of Leeds at that that time. And then, then we we uh, got to know each other uh, much better, and and um, then I mean, Susan has done a lot of lot of work on on indigenous religions and and druids, um, and um, I, I have to say that druidry is not my special field at all. But at that time, I had done done um, some cases like like this Wicca case. I had done that at that time. Um, so when when I heard that the Druid Network uh, was given green light by the Charity Commission to be registered as a as a charity uh, in in England and Wales under the banner or under the title for the advancement of religion, which is one of the categories with which you can apply 
charitable status. There are other categories as well, like like educational purposes or or, or whatever. Uh, but but I was interested in this case, or I became interested in this case because this was very contentious and, and long process, and and um, the charity commission report um, spends quite a lot of lot of space in in thinking whether we can accept the idea that the druid network and druidry in that sense is is a religious phenomenon and and so so i started to talk with with susan about this case and we decided to 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 collaborate and co-author and we participated in the launch conference of the druid network in 2010 and we talked to people and handed in a, a, a short questionnaire and, and Susan knows those people quite well. So, so she was able to gather information uh, from, from the field of Druidry more generally, uh, not just from the, from the Druid network, but, but there are other, other groups in, in England and, and Britain um, representing Druidry. And, and, and how we, we started to think how uh, this decision may give a special position for for the druid network uh, in relation to these other groups because the other groups are not uh, registered as as charities and and not definitely under the banner uh, for the advancement of religion so and then we we started to consider what what's this charity law where it comes from how in previous case, previous contentious cases the commission has has decided, and in some cases, it has decided um, um, favorably favorably to to some some boundary cases, but in in most cases, it has rejected the application, like uh, Gnostic Sensor and Scientology, for instance, and the reasons have been have been somewhat different, and and the the. One of the key problems within the Druid network was that that um, the charity law requires that in order to be understood as religious, there should be some kind of god or deity or divine entity that is worshipped by the group. And, and within the Druidry, there's no transcendent god, um, but rather the Druid network tried to uh, argue that that it is nature that is uh, divine or or equal to that kind of divine entity, or it, in in the application it wasn't even clear whether it was nature that was divine or sacred or or whether it was spirits arising from the nature or something like that, and and we we actually argue that in many ways it was the rhetorical choices that were important in the application that they used very often the word sacred for example and rituals um, defining uh, significance of, of something such as uh, spiritual uh, sp- places or, or nature and and uh, um, when when the application was accepted it it raised some some media debates and, and the most famous is is um, uh, columned by Melanie Phillips, who is known as very, very conservative 
um, author or journalist uh, writing for Daily Mail, which is a very conservative uh, pro-Christian tabloid. And, 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 and that column was very strongly arguing against defining Kruidri as, as a religion. Uh, it labeled Kruidri as a cult, uh, implicating that, that these may be harmless harmless but but definitely not on par with proper religion that is christianity um, so so that was a moment when in the in the in the british context context people were deb- debating what really counts as religion and and that that sort of brought um, the implications and and presuppositions of what what people think religion is to the to the mainstream public and and also in this case like in many other cases i discuss in this book scholars were also involved namely in the in the uh, charity registration context it is possible or at least in this particular case it was possible uh, for the crude network to to um, ask expert statement by a scholar of religion, and they they asked that uh, from uh, Graham Harvey, who is now a professor in religious studies at the Open University. And Graham Harvey wrote very very supportive statement, arguing that that druidry is definitely a religion, and and even emphasizing that that scholars of religion worldwide in international conferences study druidry as a religion. So I think that's that's a very nice example of how how Professor Harvey was referring to scholars who may or may not have anything to do with with, uh, the the case itself, but whose work is referred to that that druidry is studied internationally in the field of study of religion. So, So scholars are sometimes directly involved and sometimes indirectly referred to in those cases, and and the the statement was very su- very supportive, as I said, and, and it was very important because the Charity Commission report uh, quoted heavily uh, Harvey's report, and that was that was very very important in 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 the decision. So they got the got the status of uh, charity. And, and all the privileges it got, it, it brings. And and interesting thing is that at that point, we speculated whether um, this is opening the gates so, so, so that all other so-called pagan groups will be able to register as charities. Um, but that actually doesn't, didn't happen, happen so easily. Susan Owen has written a couple of articles about the later cases and reflecting those that that for some reason uh, the Druid Network case wasn't so successful for other potential similar communities to register as charities. So there are those many layers layers I, uh, we discuss in that that chapter. Yes, and I think the contestation of what is religion and what is not religion, 
by taking different perspective is some somehow quite interesting and i think here your work specifically speaks on this one where the discursive study of religion and i think that is a very commendable contribution in that sense uh, with this work that you're doing and specifically it comes out through the case studies that you have presented and coming to the next one you talk about the jd knights now here uh, i just you know i just want to ask uh, this one in, in this section of your discussion that what is uh, invented religion i think in this section i i believe this is something which is very important because i think so much of discussion is going on in this topic in this area perspectives are there so i think the question what is invented religion is important here so yeah please yeah um i start this chapter by talking about the concept of invented religion, uh, especially with reference to Carol Cusack's 2010 book, uh, and and in in which she um, introduces this concept. And of course, many people say that, well, in some sense, all religions are invented, of course. But Cusack actually talks about deliberately invented religions. So those so-called religions um, in which the, the founders and followers are quite explicit that this is invented or, or this is based on fictional uh, accounts or, or something like that. So they don't try to hide the invented nature of their religion. So that's that's one of the key differences if you compare to, to so, let's say, Islam. It, it is easy to argue that it is invented as well, but it doesn't explicitly say that this is invented. So in that sense, I understand what Cusack um, means by this concept. And I think the, the examples, the, the, the groups and movements she studies and later on others study under that, that term are very interesting. But my approach is somewhat different. I actually reject the, the concept of invented religion, that I don't, I don't find it that useful. I see those examples, those groups and movements as, as just examples one can study uh, from the point of view of discursive approach. And I use uh, Jedism as an example in this particular chapter, but I, I talk a little bit about many others such as uh, Pastafarians or, or the Church of Flying Spaghetti Monster, and also Swedish-based Kopimism, and, and, and many others. But, but my main focus is on Jediism. And of course, in um, now I can't remember the year, whether it was 2014 or 16 or something like that, when, when um, a group of Jedi Knights applied for the charitable status in, the, in England and Wales. But I don't really focus on that case. I focus on earlier case, uh, which is uh, a case of Chris Jarvis, um, who was escorted from the job center plus uh, where, where he was uh, looking for, for vacant uh, jobs because he was, he was wearing his hood up, hooded top. And, and he claimed that because of his religion, he is allowed to wear that. And, and, and Jedi religion requires that. And, but he was escorted out. He complained. 
and later on the job center sent an an apology that that we have uh, uh, we are sorry that we have have um, done this uh, against your what you think is your religious belief and and um, yeah then that became public it was in the media in the mainstream media in tabloids and also in quality papers such as guardian and i argue that this is um, exactly the, the example of how people who don't necessarily have voice like unemployed uh, uneducated um, white uh, young man in 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 British context feels that he doesn't have any kind of voice, but by referring to religion and and saying that this is my religion, in this case Jediism, some some somehow he is heard in the public and he is taken seriously at least for a moment. I don't think otherwise anyone would really listen to Chris Jarvis. In, in public and and definitely there wouldn't be be uh, stories in 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 the main tabloids or or guardian about about him and and i also suggest that this is exactly what is happening in society at least in western societies and in many anglophone contexts more generally and i call it uh, tentatively religionization of minorities that it is useful and 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 beneficial and, and expedient for many groups to label themselves as religions and and present themselves in public as religions that is how they are heard and may get some some benefits also or privileges and in some cases such as um, uh, the satanic temple in the in the United States is a, is a good example of of a movement that um, tries to challenge the exis- existing privileges of of other religions or, or privileging Christ- Christianity mainly mainly and and in the end it can be said that the aim is to end all privileges of all religions so. So it can be said that by presenting themselves as religions, they are also trying to highlight how uh, empty or arbitrary this privileging uh, on the base of religion can be. Uh, so it's, it's also one quite clever way of criticizing uh, either religions directly or, or society who grants those privileges to particular groups on the basis of religion. So I think this is, this. Uh, I, I, again, I would say that I'm not a specialist on Jediism. I'm not really interested in Jediism as such, what they really believe and what they really do. But this is is very interesting case to be studied from that more general point of view of how society organizes itself by referring to religion and how public debates are also keen on picking up religion if a, a small, relatively insignificant group of people 
uh, even individuals present themselves as religions. So, so, so religion is religionization of minorities basically means a, a contemporary process in which people are quite well aware that this is how they can be heard in public. And, and that is something that scholars of religion should be interested in. And that is why, why I don't think that these so-called invented religions are necessarily important as, as movements themselves, but from the point of view of, of uh, how society operates more generally. Yeah, thank you for that. Our time is moving by so fast, so let me just ask one last question. You have dedicated one whole chapter to teaching uh, religion, so I request listeners to really read the chapter because it comes from Dr. Tyra's uh, personal experience also, and he gives us some good uh, way of you know, trying to teach uh, religion. So I think that's a chapter that I would request the listeners to have a look at it. My last question is about this one, where... Obviously, there are some critical remarks on discursive study of religion. And so, and I'm sure after the publication of this book, there might be also some uh, new critical remarks that might have come or might not have come. So uh, can you, in brief, talk about what are the critical remarks and, you know, what are some of the responses that are there? Yeah. 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 I want to highlight that I have left that chapter to the end of the book because I... I made a strategic choice that this is not a book in which I simply uh, write about different positions in our field. But I try to show and demonstrate what kind of research we can do by utilizing these tools. And and in that sense, my aim is was to be inspirational, to give examples of how people can go on if they accept that... that, uh, religion doesn't have to be defined in every single study, but that they, we can study actually the category of religion. We don't have to study other scholars only. We can, we can see that society is full of, full of popular discourses on religion in various institutions and laws and things like that. And, and I'm trying to, to say to people that get some inspirations from these cases, find your own cases, and then go for it. Apply these tools as you see see uh, best in your context. But then the last chapter, I try to to discuss a little bit about different um, potential conversation partners, some of whom may be critical towards discursive approaches. And I've chosen three uh, examples. One example is those who want to define religion anew saying that, okay, this is maybe interesting to say something about the historical emergence of the category of religion, but the field itself should go back to defining religion and, and applying that equally to all departments, and, and that would unify our, our studies. Um, I obviously don't go to that, that route, but I, 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 I raise some doubts concerning that, but I highlight also that those scholars, such as Kevin Schilprak, who, who proposes that, is doing some good work because his critical writings are forcing uh, others to define their own position better and clarify what they, what they want to do. 
So that's one one discussion I answer in that chapter quite briefly. Another is so-called material or materialist and affective uh, turns in the study of religion. And I'm relatively critical of those approaches as well, uh, mainly because they rarely um, are interested in, in studying the category of religion. Some of them, some of the scholars suggest that that type of criticism has run out of course and it's not so relevant anymore. But I, I still see that, for example, uh, so-called affective turn can be very interesting and relevant in, in studying human behavior and practices. But we cannot detach that from the critical study of category of religion because, because affective uh, aspects or dimensions don't help us figuring out why some practices are named and labeled as religious or not. So they should go hand in hand one way or another. And then the third um, uh, debate I enter into that, uh, that, that chapter is, is um, uh, what, what is really meant by critical study. Um, I argue that this, the discursive approach, in a way I conceive it, is critical, but it doesn't have a normative goal uh, it doesn't say uh, how society should be organized, what is the best way to, to organize it. Um, but I argue that against um, the editorial statements by the journal Critical Research and Religion, who is more about, or which is more about um, trying to emancipate um, human uh, people from oppressive structures by stating what are the universal values um, they, they want to achieve and, and distribute uh, wider in, in different societies. Um, but the, my, I argue that, okay, one can be critical by simply showing, not saying people what to desire and what, or what are the goals, but opening possibilities opening possibilities by problematizing and historicizing the category of religion and trying to reveal what kind of power relations are in operation when, when societies use the term religion in their own institutions and, and, and public debates and, and law and so on and so forth. So um, the, the common thing between these two ways of understanding what critical study is, is that both are applying um, tools of social theory. And, and that is why I also argue that the conversation between them should continue and go on. So they, they shouldn't be completely um, separated from each other, although there are disagreements between what critical really means in those approaches. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good short take on the critical remarks and the responses. So... Coming to the end of the conversation, how do people reach out to you and is there any project that you're working on or you'll be working on? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to do some some promotion for this this book and this approach I, I propose in this, this book. But um, at the same time, I'm editing a volume called Atheism in Five Minutes, 
and that should be out uh, later on in 2022. Um, it's um, meant for undergraduate students. Um, a, a book with 64 chapters and, and more than 40 contributors. Um, so it's in the process. And, and then I hope to to get into uh, writing a book on atheism in news media and media culture. Um, so these are the, the main projects I'm I'm hoping to to work with uh, in the in the next uh, year or so. But I also have a pile of articles um, waiting to be to be finished. So so I'm hoping to work with these these all three three areas I, I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, uh, the methodology issues, especially discursive approaches, then something about atheism and non-religion, and then also every now and then something about religion and media. Yeah, and how do people reach out to you uh, regarding any questions on the book? People can send me email. I'm also using Twitter. Uh, you can find me there. Yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah, yeah. I would really would encourage listeners to get hold of this book. Those who are interested in religion, but also specifically to those scholars who are working in religion, that this is a methodological and theoretical perspectives which needs to be talked about and also at the same time, you know, dig much deeper and then really thought about. So I think this book is something which needs to be got hold of and then read properly. So thank you so much, Dr. Daimu Daira, for being here at New Books Network and having this conversation with you. Thank you very much. Thank you.